If you are listening to the Candid Conversations podcast, it means you are ready to have a major breakthrough in your business. That is why we invite industry experts onto this show so you can fill your mind with valuable information. We exist because we believe business owners are the real investors of the economy. Here's your host, Charles Schwen from Flying Kite. Welcome to another episode of Candid Conversations. I am your host, Charles Schwen. This is episode number 73. Today, we have Andre Bressler, and I was just chatting to Andre off-air because he has such a unique background, but I think the simplest term is, Andre, you are in the business of, well, your business is to sell other people's business. You work in the world of uh, emergency acquisitions, but before I get ahead of myself, welcome, Andre, to the show. Charles, thank you, man, and uh, I appreciate the invitation. It's, uh, it's always fantastic to interact with, with guys like yourself. Awesome, Andre. Thanks, thanks again for your time. So with all my guests, I always start off, I love the beginning. So what was your like uh, childhood dream? Like when I grow up, I want to be so-and-so. Did you have any of that growing up? Oh, absolutely. I was quite resolute about what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be a motorbike mechanic. At huh. school, I was always fixing motorbikes, modifying motorbikes. I took over my parents' garage. They couldn't get any cars in it. Wow. Um, so yeah, but eventually my mom convinced me that I, I needed to go to Technicon and, and get a bit of a, a a degree or a qualification behind me. And so yeah, I, I spent a bit of time as a doing some welding. I spent some time as a diesel mechanic. I went to Technicon for a while and eventually I made the leap to go to university and did mechanical engineering. And the rationale for that leap was actually twofold. The the, the first was that I'd met the lady that is now my wife mm -hmm. and it dawned on me at that stage that you know if i wanted to give my family everything that i wanted to give them or i wanted them to have i needed to earn considerably more than i would as an artisan mm -hmm. so that was a big driver for me and the second driver was probably a little bit selfish i realized that uh, artisans and technicians didn't get company cars and i wanted a company car <laughs> huh so you, you mentioned something you, you said that you you were fascinated by motorbikes right so, and you like to fix it. So you're not so much wanting to be the, the rider, but it's more about the actual bike. That's your Absolutely. About. No, exactly. And my, my current hobby is very similar. I, um, I do jet skiing, but I spend more time tinkering on these old 25 year old jet skis and keeping them running than I actually spend riding them. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if you, do you see like, I mean, cause you, you in the, in the emergency acquisition business and you see a lot of, businesses come and go and be getting sold. So you mentioned about tinkering. Do you think that's kind of like the same? You're always tinkering in the background to figure out why is this person not buying? Why is, what's the holdup? Who are the, the silent partners that, that might be causing this engine not run, so to speak? Is, do you see the alignment? Yeah, I, I do in a way, you know, I think for me, hobbies like that, the, the reason I enjoy them is that uh, they're sort of mindless escapism. You're so focused on what you're doing. You don't think about work. It's genuinely, genuinely relaxing for me. But in a business context, absolutely. I see it as a challenge all the time because I get to see why people need to do something and they don't yet understand why they need mm. to buy this business, why it's going to be good for them, what the synergies are. And it's our job to explain it to them. So mm. I, I say it to the staff all the time, you know, the best buyer for whichever client doesn't yet know they even exist. It's our job to find them, introduce it, explain it and motivate it. Mm. So I want to chat to you a little bit about, a little bit about uh, mergers and acquisitions because for a lot of people, it's it's not an everyday thing. It's not something that you come across. Um, 
I just want to rewind a little bit before you got to that that point is that you actually started your own business and eventually you listed on, on Altex. May I ask, um, why did you start your first business instead of working for somebody? And what was what was the reason behind it listing on Altex? Okay, excellent. Yeah, Charles, you know, I've had nine businesses. I'm 53 this year, and I've been involved as a shareholder in nine different businesses. That very first one that we listed is not something I actually started. Um, I started myself. Okay. I met my business partner there in a pub. Okay. And <laughs> it was a very small business. It only had a handful of employees. It had no computers. It had one chair. Wow. It was pretty much break even, if, if not even loss making at the time. But what it did have was access to a product that the power stations didn't yet know they needed and it could solve a real problem for them. You know, at that stage, I was working as an engineer at ACI at Modifontaine on the boilers. And it really was an incredible time for young engineers. We had the most amazing opportunities. We got to see and do things that today, health and safety regulations, governance, et cetera, just wouldn't let you do an experiment. So it Can was you a give really an example? Because I want to hear some of those things that you're not, you, you're not allowed to do today, but you did back then. Anything that, that oh, give me the wildest yeah. one. Well, we we had a we had a what was called a fluidized bed boiler, which is okay. a, a very unique type of technology, and it uses sort of molten sand, and you put the coal into it. And this thing was designed to take the residue from the gasifier plants and burn the sort of cake, which was fifty percent carbon, fifty percent ash, and it wasn't very volatile. It didn't have a lot of sort of burning elements to it, and. The, the way it was designed was that you had to take the water out of it and they used these presses and then they put this cake into the boiler, but these presses were just not working. Mm. And I said to my manager at the time, you know, I don't understand why we're even bothering with these presses. It's so hot in the boiler. The water's just going to evaporate. We should just inject it as a slurry. Mm. And he said to me, that's a great idea. Go try. Mm. And what happened is we failed a few times and when you overheat a, a fluidized bed boiler, what happens is you clink the bed. It goes, it just turns to glass. It goes solid. And in those days, in the early 90s, it would cost about 2 million rand to restart that boiler every time you clinked it. Whoa. And they allowed me to do it dozens and dozens and dozens of times until I got it right. But we got it right. And we ran that boiler over its maximum continuous rating it, it was a phenomenal success. But today, I just don't think you'd be allowed to experiment and clinker a bed and do these kinds of things. Because of the risk or because of the um, people could get hurt or? It's really cost. I think people just wouldn't allow you to waste that sort of money. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you, you eventually the company was listed on, on, on Altex, right? What, what, why Altex at the time? What was the bigger picture? Did you guys want to listen on JC eventually or? No, no. Um, maybe I must just go back a little step as, as to when I got into that business. And, okay. uh, you know, it wasn't really by choice that I kind of set out to get into my own first business. What I realized in, in, in my early 20s is that I didn't respond well to authority and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't working well in a corporate. <laughs> I used to get frustrated that, the, the, you know, the man hours to run some of these meetings were, were more expensive than the decision was worth that you reached at the end. Mm. And when I, when I met my partner in a the pub, there was an opportunity to sort of grow this business and I thought I'll have a go. He was quite a bit older than me and 
in sort of 2004, we were coming under big pressure for BE because we were servicing mines and power stations and things like that. So I'd set up a deal with Anglo Zamele to come in as our BE partners. And my partner at the time, he was a bit older. He didn't actually want to grow the business any further because growth's expensive. Mm. And he he had a friend who was going to list a conglomerate of businesses on Altex. And so it was really his decision. And as the majority shareholder in the business, I had to go along with it. But uh-huh. I didn't really believe in it. You know, I thought this isn't going to solve our BE problems. There's going to be a lot more pressure on margin, things yeah. like that today. That mm you know, being in the listed environment um, would require of you. So I actually just elected to exit upon the listing because, yeah, and there's a great story to this, actually. You know, my my predictions, and I I hate to say I told you so, but my predictions came right. The business really did struggle. It got sold on from that Altex listed group to another uh, mainboard listed group. Um, and it faltered. And in 2017, I was approached by the main listed company to help dispose of this non-core asset of theirs, which happened to be my old business. So I love to tell people I've sold the same business twice. Oh wow! Were you were you surprised when they uh, were were you surprised that so you sorry so you weren't surprised that it happened at at all because you kind of saw writing on the wall in a way. Yeah. No, I wasn't surprised it happened at all. It it wasn't the type of business that was going to perform well in the listed environment. And, you know, I did okay out of it. And the business survived, but it it never, never achieved the sorts of levels of success that it was achieving mm. back in 2004 ever again once it had been into that environment. So listing has an advantages. And, you know, listing is right for some businesses, but mm. it's certainly not right for others. So, so if I remember correctly, I mean, you you bought and sold a couple of business. Um, I think it was by the age of forty or something, six engineering business. If my memory serves correct, and then That's somewhere right. somehow you realize you are better at this than you are as a mechanical engineer. Quote your own quote your own words, and then eventually <laughs> yeah. you got into uh, M and A, mergers acquisition. So, I know the listeners are listening to this mergers and acquisitions. So in your own word, can you explain what it means? Like, like as if you explain it to a five-year, what is mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, I did, I did a little bit of a chat GPT when you asked me this when we were chatting <laughs> offline before. Okay. And, uh, you know, when you said to me, explain it like you would a five-year-old, I asked chat GPT to help me with that because my okay. kids are young adults now. I can't remember yeah. how to explain things like that. Okay. <laughs> so I want to read you the chat GPT answer before I give you mine, if that's okay. Sure, sure. So we can we can always come we can always come back to. I mean, how I understood it is, uh, one of them is uh, like acquisition will be like a big fish eating a small fish. Merger is left hand and right hand go together and become more powerful. That's that's how I understood it. But I'm, I I mean, this is my non quality qualified way of looking at it. And I, I just wanted to find out from you, like, because there's a buyer side and a seller side, and your business is focusing on the seller side. Right. Absolutely. Your business is to help people sell their business. And and I know you have a group of salespeople always looking for companies to to go out and and, and sell because uh, that's I take it that's that's how, how the company makes money for um so, which is gonna be one of my mm. questions. So when it comes to uh selling a business, I know you believe timing is crucial. So can you explain why timing is so important why is timing so important? 
No, absolutely, Charles. That's not a problem at all. I think, yes, just to, to sort of reiterate a couple of the things that you've said there okay. is um, you get different types of advisory firms. You get firms that work on the sell side. They work for sellers. They're called sell side advisory. You get buy side advisory, which work for buyers. Okay. And you get people that say they do both. I've chosen to be a sell side advisory business quite deliberately. You know, I just don't believe any anybody can take their best sales guy off the road and put him in procurement. They mm -hmm. just have the wrong skills. So mm -hmm. I don't believe the skills are really transferable. Um, so that's why we, we've elected to work purely on the sell side. In terms of M&A, there's no real M in M&A anymore. Um, previously, yes, there were mergers where companies would come together. It's very much acquisitions in today's environment. I was actually quite surprised to hear about a merger about two months ago, I was um, speaking to a client and what he'd actually done was acquired another business, but done a share swap and merged the two together. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm quickly going to give you the, the chat GPT version of M&A before I, I talk about the timing. Okay. The way they described it, and I think this is, this is really pertinent, is they say kind of imagine you've got a bunch of toys. Think that you've got a friend who's got different toys. Mergers and acquisitions are like when you and your friend decide to play together and share your toys. So a merger is when you and your friend put all your toys together and you play with them as one big collection and you both become part of a bigger group of toys. And an acquisition is, is a bit different. It's when one friend decides to take some toys from the other friend. They still play together, but the one friend becomes the leader playing with the toys, but they still have fun together. That so is brilliant. Thanks, oh, that's a brilliant. That's a brilliant analogy with a toy explaining it to, to a five-year-old. Brilliant. Thanks, ChatGPT. So are you happy exactly. with that explanation, Andre? Are you? I am. Okay. Absolutely, I am. You know, it. It very much. You know, when people talk about acquisitions, the a lot of people want to sell their business and leave on day one. In fifteen yeah. years of doing this, I've had two clients that have exited on day one. Most of the time, you've got to play nasty together and make sure this thing is sustainable and continues. And on average, I would say clients stay with business for at least three years. Yeah, I believe and, so. And yeah. that, and that's one of the reasons why timing is so crucial because you know ages can be a risk as well. We do a lot of retirement sales, and to do this properly, it's going to take you a year to eighteen months to run a process to sell a business, and you have to work with it for another three years you're five years away from sort of you know feet up on the beach going fishing and, and hunting and whatever it is that you, your interests are mm. but timing for me i think is it, it, what's most important about timing is people will say deals happen when there's a willing buyer and a willing seller and i'd say to you that's not not really true so why, because, people say, why do people say that then what are they missing what they're missing is that the buyer and the seller need to be willing at the same time uh -huh. If somebody comes knocking and they've got a bit of cash in hand and you're not willing to sell, there's no deal. That's right. You want to put uh -huh. your business, mm -hmm. yeah, you want to put your business on the market and that guy that came knocking has actually spent his money elsewhere, he hasn't got funds anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a deal. Mm -hmm. So timing's really important from that point of view. I think the other thing about timing is in the life cycle of the business. You know, buyers need opportunity to grow a business. When somebody does an acquisition, they're always going to look at your current position. But what they're really buying is your future. Mm -hmm. So you've got to you've got to time your transaction while you're on the up. You can't have plateaued or be in the decline. You're going to get punished for that. Mm -hmm. So 
you, you're going to get better valuations and better valuation metrics for a business that's growing and has a future attached. The interesting thing about valuation is buyers are always going to try and tell you that the, the value of your business is a function of your past. They want to base it on historicals. What you've got to do is you've, you've got to demonstrate what the future looks like and you've got to find ways to monetize that. So, so the company that you that that you are, you're at now, Benchmark International. So let's lay, let's let's use an example. Let's say um, one of the your top salesperson contact me and ask me if I want to sell my business. Take me through the process and then to help me to understand how does Benchmark help me with the timing, as an example. Okay, this is about a. This is about a four-hour meeting we normally have with clients okay. to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you the, the aura the, summary the version. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the big Texan fellow with the big hats, highlight Sunny Boy type stuff. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. So basically, what you're looking at here when you're doing a transaction is everybody thinks this is a financial exercise. It's all about money, and there's a whole lot of numbers involved. But that's a misnomer. This is a sales and marketing process before it's anything else. You're selling a business. You've got to apply sales and marketing principles. So the first part of the process is all about preparing your sales documentation. You've got to do an information memorandum, which is about a brochure. It, it's like a brochure on the business. You've got to get people interested to come to a meeting to talk to you. I think one of the big mistakes that happens in our industry is people will do prospectuses as opposed to information memorandums. It's tons and tons of information in the most infinite detail trying to sell the business on documentation. Yeah. I promise you, Charles, nobody will read that. The only person that's going to read that thing from cover to cover is your competitor, and he's exactly the guy you don't want to have all that information. Yeah. So there's an art to putting the right amount of information and the right quality of information in an information memorandum. When selling, you think about your own business. You know, you want to bring on a client. Well, you're going to do some research as to who might want to buy your product, and you're going to approach them, and we apply exactly the same principles. We look at who's in our own database in a segment that's transacted before, where buy, known buyers have shown up, who else looked at those things. So we create this sort of targeted acquirers list. We then use a lot of M&A databases. These are global databases. There's stuff um, focused on South Africa. There's international stuff. And we look at other transactions like it, who bought them, who look like those other buyers, who can have a compelling reason to buy something. And, it's not just your obvious thing being the competitors. It's about people up and down the value chain parallel to you. I think the very first deal I ever got involved with was a, a fellow who had a, a, a printing business and he was doing these cardboard sleeves for the ready-made meals that you find in, in the supermarkets. Hmm. And he was, he'd actually been with a business broker and this business broker approached me and said, don't you know anybody that will want to buy this business? And I said to him, well, I don't understand. What's the problem? This looks like a great business. And he said to me, well, I've been to all the printers and nobody's interested. I said, the printer's never going to buy this. Right. You know, it's a couple of old machines and whatever. The only thing they want is your client base. And, you know, given the fact that they exist, they could apply marginal costing and go in there and underquote you and take the business anywhere. Have you spoken to any plastic blow molds? And he said to me, but why is a plastic blow molder going to want to buy a cardboard printing business? I said to him, well, the food comes in one of these plastic tubs and there's cross-selling opportunities, there's economies of scale, there's all sorts of things. And that's, that's the kind of thinking you need to apply when you do the research. So that goes into the prep. So you prepare the documentation, you identify the buyer. We then have a whole team of people that their only job all day, every day 
is to get all of the buyers, present the opportunity, explain why we're contacting them, get them to sign an NDA and get them to come to a meeting. And then you do all the normal corporate finance stuff, the financial analytical work and the due diligence and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of people that do that. I mean, we do it really, really well, but there's a lot of other people that do it well too. But the trick to doing well in this industry, it's about finding the buyers. It's about presenting it correctly. It's about understanding those synergies. That's where the real sort of, um, spark of a transaction comes from. Okay. You, you, you mentioned something that was quite key, like, like the example you were talking about, uh, the broker said to you, why would you, why would you want, why should I approach somebody that sells plastic? And it, it goes back to the point that you mentioned in, in, in one of the, I remember you mentioned this one of the interview is people can, people that can buy, right, can sell anything, right? Because you are helping the broker see not just he's sitting he's sitting lineal. You help him to see like a three sixty. Is that what you mean? Like people can buy right to see okay the opportunities are left, right, center, and back. Once I know what I'm buying, the potential I can sell it. I can, then I can sell it. Is that is that what you meant by that statement when you say people who buy right can sell anything? Absolutely, it's about developing that con that competitive advantage. You know, the principle is really a simple one. If you can do an acquisition and secure distribution rights, you have access to goods that nobody else has got. If you can increase your volumes, you can get better discounts from your suppliers based on volumes. Um, you know, and buying right means treating your suppliers right. With if you pay all your accounts on time, you know, when the chips are down and there's stock shortages, you're going to be the guy that they're going to want to sell that stock to. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's been a principle of business my whole life is you have to look after your suppliers. They're probably more important to you than your customers because if you can't procure your goods, if you can't produce competitively, you're dead in the water. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. I, I owned a, a, a light metal fabrication business a couple of years ago. And uh, we were looking to supply a particular segment of the market and I just couldn't compete on price. And what I figured out at the time is that there were two major suppliers of the type of steel that we needed. And I got to understand that the company that was winning all the work was only actually buying exclusively from one of them. So what we did is we approached the other one and said to them, look, if you give us the same volume discounts that we would get were we on volume now, we'll be able to get to volume and we will commit to always buying from you. And they did it. And we managed to get our input costs right. We managed to compete. And that business grew by a factor of tenfold in four years. Hmm. Just purely wow. from being able to secure the raw materials at the right price and be competitive. So you've got to get your foot in the door. So speaking of which, I mean, this is obviously a big part of, of selling and, and, and hiring the right people. My question is, can this be taught? So somebody is great at sales, but can this this way of thinking be taught to somebody if so how yeah i think it's a i think it's very learnable stuff you know it's about strategy uh, and it's about negotiation so if you understand what your strategy is if you look at your business you understand your costing models you start to understand what's important to your suppliers well then it's just down to negotiation and anyone can learn negotiation huh I never thought about it like that. So thanks for that uh, light bulb moment, Andre, because I was trying to figure out how do you tell people to think outside the box? It's like, yeah, how, how do you teach people to think outside the box? It's not, it's not a linear, but you kind of just, you kind of just basically explain by following the cookie crumbs. 
Following yeah. cookie crumbs, you'll see where this goes. You'll see where the ants build their nest and so forth and so forth. So it's just logic. Yeah, it's just logic. So, um, so speaking about like like with your your employees, I um, when we spoke before, I know like they can they can a lot of them are high performers. A lot of them make a very very comfortable living from 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 selling. So, I want to know from you that what are you learning from your salespeople, as an example, and what do you think they are learning from you? Charles, this is a great question, and I, I gave it a bit of thought because it's actually quite a tough question. Um, I think for me, the biggest learning is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm really not someone that uh, responds well to authority, so I'm not well suited to team sports. Mm-hmm. But business is a team sport, mm-hmm. and I've had to learn from the staff how to play team sports. You know, if you if you think about any team sport, you know. You need different people in different positions with different skills and different personalities. And they've all got to work together and support one another and be a cohesive unit for it to be successful. The team just has to trust one another. You you need to know if you're going to pass the ball, that guy's going to be where he's supposed to be and he's got a safe pair of hands. Mm. I think the biggest thing I've learned as well is that you, you know, when you're playing a team sport, you you need to build up reserves. You've got to be constantly building your bench because things happen. You know, mm. the shark stole Sia Khaleesi. You need mm. someone to step up and fill the gap. Mm. Uh, old Elton Yankees misbehaved, regardless of how good he is. If he if he damages the team, you've got to deal with it. Mm. You know, one rock star doesn't make a winning team, and they, in fact, I think you lose more games than you than than they win for you. Mm. So you know your clients don't really care if your your striker's injured or sick. They care about their result. So you've mm. got to have a deep bench in a business. And I think the other thing I've learned from the staff as well is that personal circumstances do matter. It's not just business. You know, for them to show up on game day and perform, you have to pay attention to what's going on in their lives. You know, I, I could go on for ages and ages and ages about how I see business as a team sport because the parallels are very very real. I mean, it extends to you. Your strategy in business, you have to change your set moves. Your opponents are going to learn your game plan. They're going to use it against you. You've got to be constantly innovating. So I really do see business as a team sport. I think the important one for me that I've learned from my staff is that if people are fulfilled, you actually don't need to motivate them. You know, I don't agree with this management thinking about team builds and perks and whatever. I I see that as a bit of a, it's like giving sugar to kids. The high is fantastic, but they crash hard and they crash fast. Mm. So I believe you have to create an environment where people are passionate about what they do. They're passionate about the clients. They're successful and they're fulfilled. And you don't have to spend any time motivating them at all. So, so, So it boils down to hiring the right people. If you have, if you have, it's like building a sports team, right? If you have the right player that fits the culture and the and the, and the, and the coaches are in are, are in the same kind of frame of mind, then you got a winning team. That's what that's absolutely. What it down to. Mm. Yeah, Charles, I've got a mantra about this. You know, you get uh, you get people that are problem finders and problem solvers. Mm-hmm. I only hire problem solvers. How do you find this out? I mean, doing doing your interview, how how do you find out if they are problem solvers or not? Because because you and I both know salespeople, they they know how to talk, they know how to ask questions, and they know how to pitch, they know how to present. So how do you sass out the bullshitters? Um, Charles, I like people that interview badly. I, I believe ah. people that interview well do yeah. so for a reason because they've had a lot of practice. <laughs> okay, so, so define badly, define interview badly, because I've never heard that before. Like, give me a please share example. 
yeah, people that don't have slick answers that roll off the tongue, rehearsed answers, you know, they, they have to think about it and they fumble over their words and, you know, they give you a bit of an incoherent answer to difficult questions because they're not used to being in interviews. The, I, I believe they perform quite well. I think interviews are a shocking way of, of, of recruiting people. It's very, very, very difficult. It's been one of my biggest challenges, but I think my, my view on, on recruitment is, yes, the personality profiling, all those things, they have they have benefit. They certainly help you do your sort of first cut. But I think when you hire, you've got to you 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 can't be afraid of saying you've made a mistake. If it's not mm. working out, you know, deal with the tough stuff early up. Mm. Bring them in, have the discussion. If it's not working, clean it out. Mm. And your your staff will tell you very, very quickly whether people gel, whether they're getting along, whether they're pulling their part. And um, yeah, I I think it's it's a bit of a lucky draw a lot of the time. You can do your best, mm. but you'll you'll always get a bad apple here or there. No, absolutely. So so speaking about career, like you've you've had a pretty successful career so far. And did you have somebody well, back in your younger days, or even now, like a mentor or somebody that, that that helps you, because you know, like the saying goes, it's learning at the top, right? Because yeah, you can't share too much. So, I mean, yeah. uh, do you have any more mentors that that you bounce off ideas with? Only my wife, Charles. Okay. okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I I grew up in what I perceive to be have been a pretty dysfunctional family. So I've never really had strong role models or mentors or any of that kind of stuff. I've just had to be self-driven. So mm -hmm. my attitude is I wake up every day looking to make different mistakes. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. So, but if you if you, I mean, we're talking about like we were talking about sports team and and, and coaching. If you looking back and you understand the importance of a coach by looking at a sports team, the sport, the, 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 it, 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 it's especially when when the, when your team members are younger than you, right? It, the experience that you build. So looking back, if you had a good mentor, a good coach, do you think that would have helped you with a transition or help you? I suppose um, learning a different way. Charles, I'd like to believe so, but um, going back to the point that I don't respond well to authority, I probably wouldn't have listened to them anyway. Huh. Okay. Okay. Well, there goes that idea. So yeah. I think where I've always been fortunate is, you know, I, I really believe in partnerships. Um, you know, I think I've only had one business out of the, the nine that I've been involved in that I owned 100% on my own. And I believe you've got to have a partner that's a very, very different individual to you, different personality different motivations, all these kinds of things. And, mm. and I believe you work these things out together. So I, I, that's somebody that's in the business, understands it, is living it with you and has a different view. And mm. I think that can open up your eyes to, to different ways of learning. Mm. Okay. So talking about learning, right? I mean, what would you, how would you describe success to your 18 year old Andre? If, if the 18-year-old Andre came out from fixing bikes, just came out from the garage and running to this 50-odd-year-old Andre, say, hey, what, what is success? Tell me. What does the future look like? What would you say to him? I think for me, success has a very different shape to what it does to most people. You know, people look at success in terms of money and material goods and things like that. But for me, I, what I've really learned is, you know, success is being fulfilled and it's about things that are important to you. So do you work in an environment where you actually like the people, where you can generate enough income to provide for your family and for theirs? 
Mm. Are you doing something that's got meaning and has a positive impact on your clients? Have you got a good relationship with your wife? Do your grown kids like to actually come home and have a meal with you and do things with you? Mm. Do you have the ability to give back? You know, I think that was for me, when we did the deal with Benchmark, we sold out a majority stake to Benchmark in 2017. And one of the compelling reasons for me is Benchmark has this Benchmark Cares initiative. As a company, we are obligated to do charity events every year, that kind of thing. And that resonated with me. So success for me is about being fulfilled. It's about having enough. I don't measure success by flashy cars or bank balances and things like that. You know, there's a wonderful story about the the fellow that invented the intimate. There's a movie about it. He invented the intermittent windscreen wipers for cars. Yes. Yes. I've seen and, that movie. Yeah. Yeah. You've seen the movie and yeah, he was successful. He won his case. He, but he lost everything in the yeah. process. That's, yeah. It's sad, right? So, it's sad. Yeah. I, it's I, very, very sad. I, um, thank you for sharing that. And, uh, I agree with you hundred percent. Like, I don't think I have a saying, which is I want to be famous in my own home, meaning that I want my son to know me. I want my wife to know me. I want them to know me. I want to be famous in my own home because, and, and you're talking about like a lot of times people see the material stuff. And I've spoken to every single person when I ask them this question on your deathbed or at a, at a eulogy, nobody ever talks about how much money you made, how much holiday, or they, they don't talk about that stuff at all. They talk about you as a person. So everything yeah. you just said now kind of aligns with that. And Andre, a last question before I, before I let you go, and you've been very, very gracious with your time. And you obviously are a deep thinker and you think a lot. So I want to find out from you in the past year, what have you changed your mind on that you, for example, you for many, many years, this is the way it has to be. And then something happened that made you had a hard moment to say, what I thought about this was actually wrong. Anything that st sticks out? Charles, this is actually a really, really easy question for me. Um, you know, I think having done the benchmark deal, I've got partners in this business now that have deeper pockets than me. They've got more experience than me. They've got higher risk appetite than me. And I'm exposed to thinking that is better than my own. And, you know, I, my whole life have been a little bit of a nano manager. Micromanagement was something I aspired to. And my partners have really, really pushed me. And in the last 18 months, I've really learned to let go and to trust the staff. And the outcome has been incredible. I mean, the business has doubled in size. I've got a better work-life balance. I mean, there's days I can actually leave the office by 5.30. It's phenomenal. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I think that has been the big change for me is to, to learn to trust the staff. Just get out of their way. You know, previously, and I think most entrepreneurs are like that. They want to do everything themselves. They roll up their sleeves. They get stuck in. Yes, it's important to know how every function in the business works that you can assist and guide people, but you don't have to do it yourself. And that's been my big learning. Well, I, I love that. I, I love that. Like you hire the right people and trust them and get out there. Let they, let they do what you hire them to do, basically. Yeah, Charles, I like to hire people that are smarter than me, and that's very easy. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, thank you again for your time, and uh, you've been very, very gracious. And listeners, if you want to read up more about uh, Andre, you can check him out on his LinkedIn page. And if you want to learn more about the company, go, uh, go visit Benchmark International. And thank you again for listening to this podcast. Andre, thank you again. It's been wonderful, and uh, it's been my absolute pleasure. No, Charles, thank you again. Thanks for the opportunity. It was fantastic. 
If you would like to connect with Charles, get in touch with him on LinkedIn, Charles Schwen, or follow him on Instagram, Flying Kite ZA. Till next time.